Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm excited to have Kevin James on my show today. Kevin is the founder and CEO of Better Future Forward, a 501c3 nonprofit that offers income share agreements, which are a financial tool that can help students to more safely fund their journey through higher education. In this episode, we're going to talk about income share agreements, starting with what are they, their role in the future of paying for college, and what might be standing in the way of this promising innovation, including a recent action by the CFPB that targeted Kevin's organization. Kevin, welcome to the show. We've talked a bit on this show before about the idea of using innovative financial tools to ensure your investment in education. And in that conversation, we touched on ISAs, but I'd love it if you could help us build this discussion up from scratch by explaining in simple terms, what is an income share agreement? Sure, I'm happy to do that. And, and first, thanks for the opportunity to be here, Beth. I, it's great to talk with you. I do think in this debate, we haven't done enough to define terms clearly. And so there's a lot of people talking past one another, I think. And so I would put forward that an ISA is a type of legal contract where a student is getting money for school to cover tuition, living expenses, other things, and agreeing to make monthly payments that are calculated, you know, basically by multiplying a percentage times their monthly income. So it's a percentage of your income when you're earning above some kind of minimum minimum amount. And then they're agreeing to make some kind of fixed number of payments or until a time elapses. And so just to just to make this concrete, in our program for, for Better Future Forward, the nonprofit that I've founded and run, students can take money from these community funds. We're based in Chicago and Minneapolis, St. Paul and Milwaukee. And they use that to cover their expenses for school, living expenses, other things. They then agree to make payments after school in months where they're earning above $40,000. So when they're earning below that, they have no obligation. When they're earning above that, their payments are calculated as a percentage of their income. That percentage is set just based on how much money they take from the fund. It doesn't have anything to do with their major or school or anything like that. And then they make payments until they've either made 120 payments in months where they're earning above $40,000, so 10 years of payments, or until 20 years elapses. And then we have a what we call an early completion amount where we track in the background, we essentially don't want them ever to pay more than what they would have paid on a loan with a 7.5% interest rate. And if they ever hit that amount, they just finish early. Okay, Kevin, let me pause you there because you've given us a lot to work with. So the basic problem is I'm a student, I need money to pay to go to college, whether it's to buy my car so I can get to college or to pay tuition or buy books or what have you. So my options are this, I can pay in cash, if I've got the cash, can ask my family for cash, I can borrow from the federal loan program, I can go to the private student loan market, or I can get an ISA. So you're telling me this is just a different way of getting cash up front with kind of a different agreement about what I owe you in exchange. Instead of looking like a mortgage where it's like flat monthly payments or or a car payment where you paid off for a flat set of payments over a set period of time, you're describing this kind of new arrangement where I'm paying you a percent of what I earn over a fixed period of time. And then you've got these extra details in there, like 
If you don't make a certain amount, you're not going to pay anything. And if you if you turn out to be Mark Zuckerberg, and you're making billions, you're not going to have to pay, you know, an exorbitant amount back. So that sound about right? That was a good summary. Okay. So now let me ask you, and we'll get into some of the other stuff that I cut you off from talking about, but people like me are out there screaming about how cool ISAs are. And I want you to tell me what is so great about an ISA? Yeah, I, I want to use our program and our students as an example. And so let me jump in first just to talk about what our students are typically experiencing. So we're, take Chicago, for example, we serve a lot of students, many of whom are, are lower income in Chicago. And so these students, they're traditional age, they're pursuing a bachelor's degree. They're coming out there, they will max out their Pell Grants, they'll max out state grant aid, they'll take the federal loans, which as a freshman, for example, you can take only up to $5,500. And they will often have some kind of gap that remains that might be three or four or $5,000 per year. And that is a lot of money for a student to cover out of pocket. And so their options are pretty difficult at that point. They could potentially take a Parent PLUS loan. There's been tremendous coverage recently about how parents are finding themselves buried in Parent PLUS loan debt. So many of these parents are uncomfortable doing that. They can take a private loan. Private loans are incredibly, they have very few protections, or they could work. And that's what we see with a lot of students is that they are working a tremendous number of hours. These are our students, 35 hours a week, 40 hours a week while trying to go to school full time. Nobody should have to do that. And so our fund is really designed to solve that. It gives them a source of funding they wouldn't otherwise have access to in a way that's designed to be protective. And I think we should ask ourselves by way of getting first at the, when we ask, how do we add value? I think we need to ask, what's the problem we're solving for students? And why are these students in this situation? We have an incredible patchwork of programs that we've evolved over the last 60 years, and yet the students we're serving today still face all those challenges I just articulated. So I think getting to that first is how we start here. Kevin, that's helpful because I think the academic discussion about ISAs, and I'm probably as much to blame for this as anyone else, is is about these ideas of alignment of incentives and the insurance market and all that sort of thing. But you're saying like very practically, there's a, a very narrow problem that you're trying to solve for these students. And it's covering these last few dollars, few thousands of dollars to get them in and through college that are not covered by other sorts of programs. And so that's what Better Future Forward and your organization is working on doing. Is that right? I think it's partially right. I would quibble with narrow in this sense. I think we, when we built these systems 60 years ago, when the Higher Education Act was created, we largely had this conception of the problem that students just needed money that we had a great higher education system and we just need to give people money to access it. And that's where we got these loan programs. I think looking back, we should have had a broader conception of the problems that face students. One of them is risk, that education can be a great investment, but it doesn't pay off for everyone. You may graduate into a pandemic and it could pay off in the future, but you could have a long period of, of low earnings. So people need protection from risk and it's unfair to ask them to take on for traditional mortgage style or fixed payment loans when they face those risks. The other is, is, is value that we have this incredibly diverse system that ranges as programs from like a Harvard MBA to cosmetology programs to online software programs. And in that context, you have to think about value. Like, is the program good? And so 
to me, the students face all three of those problems, and we need more tools that are designed to give them access to financial support, protect them from risk, and help ensure it's, it's actually tied to meaningful educational value for them. That's what got me excited about ISAs, and BFS programs are built around solving all three of those things for students. Yeah, so it solves the problem of getting cash in hand when they need it. Also, the problem of risk, because if it turns out you don't make as much money as you had hoped, you're not going to have to pay back as much as you received. Tell me about the last piece, so, and that's value. So how do ISAs help with this question of value? Sure, it's a, it's a great question. And I think the first is, is we as the funder are incentivized to care about students' graduation rates, about their being successful after school, because in building these community funds, if we want them to be sustained, students, we have to get students at least over that $40,000 income hurdle. Many college dropouts won't make it over that hurdle in any reasonable time frame. And so our mission, but also our organizational sustainability, getting students to and through school and, and graduating is, is incredibly important. Well, let me pause you there. So the, the dimension that you just mentioned is basically you all don't get paid your money back unless the students that you're serving succeed. So it's kind of what an economist would you know, use jargon to say, like you, you've aligned the incentives of the funder and the student because you both want the student to succeed. That's right. The other dimension is just everything I've talked about so far is just trying to create better tools for, to help students cover their costs. But we also know the higher ed system itself is inequitable, that there's not every student has the same access to well-resourced institutions or institutions with strong graduation rates. And so, I mean, there's probably a whole podcast you could do on this, but I think the fact that we have poured so much money into the system for six decades without asking a lot of questions about student outcomes and how students are doing has led to a system that's not that built around student outcomes. And so the point is, can we also help to drive changes in the underlying system to make it more equitable too? If we are asking questions as a funder that, you know, we want institutions to have strong graduation rates for underserved students, we want to create incentives for them to focus on that. Yeah, I think that's great. Okay. So Kevin, the ISA space is still pretty small, right? There's only a handful of providers at this point? Yeah, by a handful, maybe. If you count schools, it's probably 100 or less. Okay, got it. So then what makes your organization, Better Future Forward, unique? Because I know that your business model is a little different from what some of the other for-profit ISA providers are doing. So we are a nonprofit, as you mentioned, and our funds are philanthropic. I mean, they're designed to be sustainable. I, I call us a social enterprise because they're philanthropically funded, but modeled to be at least financially sustainable. The thing I think that was core to our work was we have been focused from the beginning on what are those problems that students face and how can we build something that's purpose-built to solve them from the ground up. So a very clear focus on achieving those outcomes for students and particularly underserved students. And there's something I want to emphasize here around the importance of learning and iterating because you've worked a lot on the federal programs. My background is I spent a lot of time working on federal loans and income-driven repayment. Those programs are built in a very top-down way. The terms are set by Congress. 
I think changes come every five to 10 years. I think it's been 13 years since the law was reauthorized. The reason I bring this up is because we have focused on testing this tool with students and getting their feedback and constantly changing it as a way to improve it and get much closer to those outcomes. And when you look at the rest of the world around us, most of the things you use in the world are built this way. They're built with a lot of engagement with the people who use them through a lot of iteration. It's sort of the opposite of our policy process. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds very different from the way that we design policy most often. I think it's a, it's an important thing to note that there's a lot of value in this innovation and both in what it can do for our programs and others, but how it can also inform these public programs and debates because they are, you know, obviously more slow moving in their reform. Right. You know, I love the concept of ISAs, you know, from an academic perspective, but something I've always noted is, you know, the success of ISAs in actually changing the way we think about hired finances, whether students like these things, right? And so it turns out like that just because something makes sense in a econ textbook sort of way doesn't mean that people will like it. And we need people to like it in order for this to, to work and actually help them. Okay, so, you know, I, th I think there's a lot of people out there who are skeptical of ISAs. I mean, I think that's fair. We've had a history of in the US economy of innovative financial products kind of causing problems in the past, to put it lightly. And so what are people maybe getting wrong about ISAs that could be turning them off from the notion? Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. There's there's obviously skepticism or outright opposition in, in certain quarters. And I, I want to second what you're saying. I mean, we, we have had abuse in the private sector and, and certainly within private financial products. And so to, to get more directly to your question, I think they're missing across all those areas that I mentioned that we have huge gaps right now where populations of students do not have what they need to be successful. The students I mentioned, and then students like Dreamers are even in a worse position. The students, the current protections that we have are falling well short of what is necessary. Depending on the number, something like 20 to 30% of students who take federal loans will default at some point within the lifetime of their loan, which is horrific for a program that has, what, 43 million people in it. And then again, the system itself is falling short from a value perspective. So the question that I face is, yes, there's so many public reforms that we should do to these systems and keep working to make them better. But what I ask is, are there ways to leverage the tremendous assets that we have in this country on the private side to also build tools that, that also focus on solving those problems for students? To me, it's not an either or public or private. It's a both. And can we use everything that we have at our disposal to solve this problem? Yeah, I think a lot of times we think in terms of unrealistic counterfactuals, meaning, you know, well, we could have some sort of utopia in the higher ed financing realm. And in which case, you know, we ISAs would not be the profitable option. But what we've got is a little bit of a mess. And if ISAs offer an improvement on that, maybe we should take them more seriously. All right. So, Kevin, ISAs are trendy among people like me who are kind of market-oriented thinkers in the higher ed space. But from what I remember, you were probably one of the first people in Washington who were, you know, were taking this issue really seriously. And I think that's actually how we met. 
when you came over to visit me at Brookings from the Hill to tell me about this great new idea you had, which was to implement, you know, the the design of an ISA into the federal lending program. So how did you get started on this idea? Yeah, I I remember that meeting. <laughs> and I mean, I got started working on federal student loans. I worked for a member of Congress, Tom Petri, who was just a plug for Tom Petri, one of the most thoughtful people I've ever worked for. You know, he had worked on income contingent loans and, and he really liked the Australia and New Zealand and UK systems that have kind of very simple income-based systems. And I think it's worth noting, I, I was curious and dug around and, you know, I don't think, at least in Australia and the UK, they've had to stop their systems at all in the way that we've had to kind of pull the emergency shutoff valve for our system here in the US as a result of COVID. I, because their systems are so simple and income-based, they haven't had to stop them as far as I could tell. That's right. So there was sort of an automatic safety valve with those programs through the economic crisis. So you're talking about how, whereas here, we had to actually put a pause on student loan repayment because we didn't have this sort of automatic tie to income. Exactly. And so he, I worked with him to try and create those types of reforms on the federal side and still think they would be tremendously valuable. It just, I became interested in ISAs as a way, again, to say, could we also try and leverage the tremendous assets that we have as a way to create sort of similarly protective options on the private side as a complement to our public programs? You know, I feel pretty convinced that ISAs could potentially play an important role in higher ed finance or even just the idea of income contingent repayment, whether it be in federal policy or in the private market. But what is standing in the way right now of the private marketplace expanding for income share agreements? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there's really three things. And so I'll say one quickly and then stop so I don't say too much. But one is, okay. I think there's just uncertainty and confusion about what problem they're trying to solve. And I think it's contributing to some of the skepticism. I think if we had a clearer, I would say, North Star about I almost forget about everything we know about ISAs and loans and just say, what would a good student finance tool be? It would be broadly accessible to students in terms of their access to it. It would be truly protective. It would be built around outcomes. I think having that as a benchmark and then say, okay, how do federal loans compare against that? How do these private tools compare about that? It would just help clarify the discussion and, and advance how people can think about these different tools. That's Point number one, and I'll pause for a second. Okay. <laughs> the other two are legal and access to affordable capital, which I think are topics in their own right. Okay. Yeah. So legal, just you know, for those interested, there's really no regulatory framework for ISAs right now, or not an insufficient one. And then what was the other cost of capital, yep. right? For for to make these at a low cost, you really need more robust robust marketplace, which would likely come from regulation. Is that correct? Yeah, I I think it's both. You need more data that these are just new. You don't have a lot of data about how they perform. You need clear regulation. And so I think on the affordable capital side, philanthropy and impact investing, I think need to be, play a central role, that they need to help build this space in a way that has access to affordable capital and also creates expectations of people doing this, that they should be measuring these outcomes and should be focused you know, on students. Right. Part of the reason we wanted to have you on this week, Kevin, is because we saw that there was a recent action from the CFPB that named Better Future Forward. So I was hoping you could tell me about what that was all about. Yeah, for sure. I think this gets at some of the legal and regulatory certainty that is out there. 
So we entered into a consent order with the CFPB, and it was primarily around the Truth in Lending Act, which is the federal law that kind of sets out the disclosure regimes. If you get a credit card offer or other things, it has like the principal and the interest rate at the top. Those forms that we get in the mail and we rip up and throw away and don't read, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> and the central question was whether an ISA is a type of loan under that statute and whether it should be disclosed, like the disclosure should follow the requirements of that law. And when you look at the law, it has exclusions for things that are not considered to be credit under the law, one of which is tools where the funder risks the, the amount, the risk loss of the amount advanced. So remember, we talked about with an ISA, if you don't earn income, you don't pay. And so you could pay nothing. And so when we thought about this, we thought it doesn't seem to fit. It falls within that exclusion. But even more importantly, trying to build the disclosures it was hard to see how an ISA fits into the existing disclosures. They seem very built for kind of your traditional fixed payment installment loan or private loan. And so we tried hard and then eventually decided we will try, we will build disclosures that follow that, but are adapted to kind of meet or sort of describe the characteristics of an ISA. And we tested those with students and we did advising sessions with students. So when the Bureau came and we went through this process, they determined that they believe ISAs are a type of loan that we thought it was best to work with them and, and come up with a disclosure regime that would provide some clarity as to how these should be disclosed. Got it. So very big picture. The CFPB wants the same thing you want, which is to make sure that when you write a contract with a student, that they know what they're getting into, right? I mean, that's the that's the goal of these things. Even though I joked about us not reading these <laughs> these papers, we certainly hope that's not the case when <laughs> when we ultimately land on what a disclosure should look for for the ISA. But it sounds like this is not a you know catastrophic disagreement. It's it's just trying to work out what it is that these disclosures should look like and how can organizations like yours comply with with what CFPB thinks is an appropriate disclosure. That's the heart of it. We. We can talk more about this, but we absolutely believe ISAs need strong regulation. And in fact, I think there's opportunities for policymakers to create even stronger, more protective laws around ISAs. And this particular thing revolved around this question of whether they are technically loans under this law and how these disclosures should look. Right. And so you are like the rest of the industry in that you are looking for guardrails on, you know, what what should be happening with disclosures, what are appropriate, you know, effective repayment rates or things like that. So you you all are calling for regulation. It would be nice to get that, right? For sure. And so I think we we are eager to work with the bureau to get clarity on this question and then more broadly, we have in the past worked with policymakers to like like legislators on Capitol Hill to say please update these laws to adapt, sort of apply all the existing consumer protection laws to ISAs, but in a way that kind of makes sense for how this new tool is built. And also add, there's there's opportunities to create new protections. So for example, there's nothing in current law that ensures that a private loan could not become hugely unaffordable. And I think there's, because an ISA is defined as a percentage of your income, I think there's opportunities where we could create laws that say you can't 
go above a certain percentage of your income in an obligation and you don't have payments above a certain minimum amount. And that would already bake in a lot more affordability into the current system than what sort of is assured by our current laws around private student loans. Yeah, yeah. The ISC market is small right now. And the advantage of that is that, well, for me personally, is that I know a lot of the players in this space, and I've been able to see a lot of the contracts that people are offering. And and I feel pretty convinced that those of you who are operating right now are really doing so in good faith and offering terms to students that are, are pretty fair and that work well for them. But I also believe it's only a matter of time before we get actors entering this space who are not operating in good faith and trying to help students. And we know that students don't tend to have super high levels of financial literacy. And so I really worry about us continuing to have this market operate without regulation. I don't mean to say I don't want the market to operate. I mean to say I want regulation so that this market can operate safely. Yeah, I I think you're right. And we sort of spoke to this earlier, but these are tools. I mean, they're, they're a financial tool. You can do dumb things with them. You can do harmful things with them. The things that make them beneficial are not self-executing. And so we need both laws that are strong in terms of protecting students. And again, I, I think there's roles for philanthropy and impact investing to even push the space to really, you know, measuring a lot of key outcomes that would go beyond even what we would put in law. Yeah, that's the one aspect of ISAs I really love is it's, it's outcome based. And, you know, our accountability system that we have and from policy level is, is not so much focused on outcomes except for for-profit or career-oriented training at this point. So I like that ISAs raises that issue. All right, Kevin, I'm going to give you one last question and we're going to end on a more practical note because I like to make sure that our listeners who are aspiring students or those who are supporting them in their search get, get something out of these conversations as well. So I want to say, what do families out there or students and their families need to know about ISAs? Are they able to go out and sign up for one? How do they know what, what is a good ISA and, and, and who are they good for? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, as you mentioned, the ISA space is still relatively small. There's a number of schools that offer ISAs. I mean, just to give one example, Colorado Mountain College has a program for dreamers. There are some there's ISA providers that offer ISAs across a range of schools. So for example, Stride. But really, I would go back to the example that we talked about earlier, the student that we serve that has used federal loans and grants and is struggling with either having to work a lot of hours or consider loan options like Parent Plus or private loans that make them really nervous, frankly. And I think an ISA can be a great way to get access to new financial support that can help you graduate on time and, and focus on school, and then also do it in a way that offers real protections. And I think there, the consideration is really look at the numbers. And I think a provider really should be doing some kind of advising session with you. Ask them to walk through examples of what you might pay in different circumstances so that you can really understand, will this offer the protection that's being advertised? And what's your likely cost at kind of different incomes in the future? Yeah. So providers should not be shy about coaching you through this process and and letting you know what are all of your potential outcomes. That's right. That's right. All right, Kevin. Well, this is a really fun conversation. I think it'll be useful for the listeners. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. This was great, Beth. 
If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You could send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at Dr. Beth Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.